0: Okay. Today is October 25th, 2020. We are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the chapter more about alcoholism. We are starting on page 39. The
1: paragraph, Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. Today's reader is Rita and our speaker for today is Tova. So Rita, if you could please read those pages for us.
0: Hi, my name is Rita, a compulsive reader. Fred is partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good, he has a fine home, is happily married, and the father of promising children children of college age. He he is so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual, yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realised. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told is most instructive, for there was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited a splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems and that I would therefore be successful were you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business and for a time, all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day, I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that, physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud in the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadow, shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friend, friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatsoever, whatever, against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I, if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said, though I did raise a defense, it would only one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from, the moment I had not, from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much. And they asked me if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect what a, that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. Then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had only though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems, I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying. And, I hope, more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless, apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I'd been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Thank you so much, Rita. And next, we're going to have Tova share for approximately 20 minutes on the reading. Welcome, Tova. Hi,
1: Kim. Hi, everybody. I'm Tova, um, recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic in South Jersey, where close to where this meeting used to meet in person. Um, and this is a, well, first of all, let me say, if you're new, or if you have questions about the whole spiritual thing and God, it's okay because the next chapters we agnostics, and we'll get into that. So it's okay. You're where you need to be right now with the process. Um, and um, this is a perfect day for me to be sharing because um, on Halloween it will be eight years um, since I put down the food and stopped throwing up and stopped using laxatives and, um, started to work the steps, which I think I'm really bad at dates. I forget everybody's birthdays and, um, all the important dates, but I think that my higher power picked that date of Halloween. So that, because it's, it's very hard to forget, especially as a compulsive overeater, um, a holiday that involves so much candy (laughs) and binging. And that, that would be the day that I would be, um, that the, I would be able to start this journey um, to recovery. Um, And I also, I relate so much to Fred, especially lately in my life. Um, And um, what was read at the end of the chapter, um, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. And I think that's what tripped me up for a really long time is that um, there were times that I felt like I could control my eating and control what I was doing with food. Um, And so it was confusing to me when I would go back and get into that vicious cycle again of like, um, of binging and then binging, purging, all of it, Um, because I'm like, but I have the willpower, I've done it. But um, those periods definitely over time of um, controlling my food started to get shorter and shorter. And my obsession started with, you know, what am I going to eat? What did I eat? What should I eat? What are they eating? How am I going to do this? How am I going to get rid of this? Like, it just started to completely um, consume my mind, that mental piece um, of this disease. So um, I, I identify a lot with Fred Um, I like, I like that he has a really attractive personality, (laughs) um, but, and he makes friends with everyone. I don't know if I would say that about myself, but, um, the part where it says to all appearances on page 39, he is stable, well-balanced and individual. Um, I think that, especially as a bulimic, my weight never, like I definitely gained weight and lost weight and it fluctuated a lot, but it, I didn't have like the very, very significant weight gain that makes it clear to the outside, um, as clear to the outside is easier to hide. And, um, and I think from the outside that, um, people probably thought I had it together. Um, I always graduated at the top of my classes. Um, that's like some perfectionism in there. Um, I was involved in lots of activities and, um, philanthropy, I had friends, um, and I, I wasn't a fighter. Um, it actually confused me a lot when I came into program and people would talk about resentment because I, I only ever understood that word to be associated with anger. And I, I didn't think of myself as an angry person because I didn't fight. I didn't yell. Um, for me, um, now I understand resentment. I could be like refeeling something or, or replaying it or reliving it. And I definitely did that a lot. And for me, all of the anger turned in, I turned it inward, um, and, and I ate, I didn't yell at somebody. I would just eat. So, um, and even all of my, my niceness to everybody, it just came from a really deep fear of being rejected and just not being liked, um, or wanting something from people. Um, and So yeah, my go-to really was to like blame everybody and feel like a victim and feel rejected and, um, and recreate reality really. Um, and so, um, when he talks about, well, let me say first, like when, so he talks about this first time that he, um, goes to the hospital and he was really ashamed of it. Um, and far from admitting that he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to rest his nerves. And so for me, like resting my nerves would be like coming to lose weight and thinking that that was my only problem. And, um, at, you know, at the height of my disease, I was doing things like, well, throughout, throughout really, um. I worked in restaurants. I would eat the leftover food that people left on their plates when I would take them back. I would, um, I would, I pooped my pants multiple times from using laxatives and not being able to get to a bathroom quick enough, um, clogging bathtubs and toilets from vomiting. Um, I remember having mice in an apartment that I lived in in New York, and I wanted to keep eating in my room and hiding it, so. I would just sleep with the lights on because if i turned the lights off from all the food wrappers the mice would come out so i would just sleep with the light on um so that kind of that kind of shame and humiliation that fred felt um whether people knew about what i was doing or not like i i felt that very deeply um and i was starting to recognize (laughs) which sounds crazy after the events that i described but i was starting to recognize that things were out of my control. But um, I didn't understand that this is a twofold illness. I didn't understand that I had this physical allergy where there were certain foods or certain behaviors that I was engaging in that would set off the cycle of wanting more and more. And I didn't understand that during those times where I was able to control my eating that um, I still had those that I still had a disease in my mind that would obsess and eventually lead me back to the food. Um, and so when, um, when they came to see him in the hospital at the top of 40, um, I first learned about OA in 2004. And I conceded that I had some of the symptoms, just like Fred at the top of 40, but I was a long way from admitting that I could do nothing about them. I was positive that all these humiliating experiences, plus the knowledge that I had acquired would keep me um, from engaging that in, in, in those things and self-knowledge would fix it. Um, and I was able, I, Fred talks about this too, that I was able to have willpower and discipline and accomplishments in all these other areas of my life. So why can't I just do it with the food? Um, and, So I think that, so I heard about, I said, I heard about OA in 2004. I didn't actually come to a meeting until 2011 (laughs) Um, because, because of this, because I was like, Fred and I didn't want to admit, like I had some of what you guys have, but I'm not as far gone or I'm not like this or that. Um, And I wanted to identify out and I would find every way that I was like different than everyone else who would need OA. I wanted to be, I think, I think a lot of us can relate to that to feeling like, our case is special, <laughs> I'm unique. Um, so maybe that would work for you. That's really nice, but it's not for me. Um, I just realized too, Kim, I didn't start a timer. So if you could um, like give me a heads up about. Sure, do you want me to give you a 10 and five? Um, sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, when it says in the, towards the bottom of 40, I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows so, I mean, that happened even when I came to my first set of meetings. I didn't really hear, um, I didn't hear anything about the solution. If anyone said it, I didn't hear it. Um, but I did hear people talk about, you know, um, things they were doing with food that I could identify with, some some that was different than what I did. And a lot of things that weren't related to program at all, like people's cats being sick. It, it was just, it was all very confusing to me in the beginning. Um, and so, so I came in 2011, but I didn't really like, I didn't take any action. I didn't find a sponsor. Um, I didn't figure out what it meant to work the steps. Um, I kind of thought that you go to meetings and, and then it just like happens to you, like, like keep, cause people would say like, keep coming back. And so I'm like, okay, I keep coming back. And I just wanted like lightning to strike and for God to just fix it and take it away. I didn't want to actually like anything like do any work um I wanted it to to just be fixed um so on page 41 um so I think let me say this like leading up throughout my life um I could have come up with a lot of reasons of like why I needed to eat it was my childhood it was you know mental illness in my family, it was blah, 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 blah. I could come up with many reasons. Um, but when Fred talks about um, that perfect day and not a cloud on the horizon. Oh, thank you, Kim. <laughs> That's um, that perfect day and not a cloud on the horizon. I um, that happened for me. So so when I did come to OA in 2011, um, it was because I was getting married a month later. And Um, I needed to like fix this food problem before I would go into a marriage or, or um, it wasn't going to work. And uh, so I thought that's what you do. You like go and it gets fixed and then you graduate um, from OA. Um, It's probably better that I didn't know it's like COVID. Like I thought it was going to last for two weeks. So it's probably better that I didn't know it was going to be this long (laughs) in the beginning or I would have run away. Um, But when he talks about going to the hotel, leisurely dressed for dinner and that, that thought crossing his mind and that perfect day. So for me, that would be my one year wedding anniversary where, um, it was a great, it was a great time in my life. I was starting to, after a year of moving, like after being married and starting to make friends, I was getting established in my career. Um, I was married to a man that I loved. I had just gotten a promotion. So, um, but yet, for some reason, I got home from work that day and I had our our wedding cake in the freezer where you like eat it. I guess you eat a piece of it on your anniversary or something. And I ate the whole cake um, before my husband got home from work. And then we were supposed to go out to dinner and um, and I had thrown up and I couldn't get off the couch and I felt terrible. And it was the first time, for whatever reason, because I had done a lot of insane things with food. But it was the first time that I really saw the insanity. Because I'm like, there's no reason. Why am I doing this? Like, why, why am I hurting myself? And I had had plenty of doctors tell me, you know, you're destroying your teeth. You're destroying, destroying your digestive tract. You're, you know, here's pills for anxiety. Here's this and that. Um, but I couldn't hear it. And for whatever reason, um, in that moment, I could see. That mental, that mental piece of this disease, and how insane I was, um, and I guess that was like the beginning of the end for me. Where um, I still had, um, it wasn't like I had that moment and then I stopped. <laughs> I still, it still took um, about another month after that, but it was different. I felt something shift in my mind after. I could see that real insanity. And, um, on page 42, it's, um, yeah, when it talks about, um, on page 42 in the first full paragraph, two of the members of AA came to see me, they grinned, which I didn't like so much. And I remember that like when I would be in meetings and people would laugh or they would say that food was just fuel for them and it would piss me off so bad. I'm like, how can you laugh? I'm suffering. I want to die. How is this, how is anything funny right now? Um, and, but, but at that point I, I was at a place where when my sponsor asked if I thought myself an alcoholic and if I was really licked this time, like that's step one, I, and that's, um, that was how I felt. I felt um, I could concede to those things finally, and um, and that was how I could be willing to start to work the steps. Um, and yeah, hearing recovery in in lots of people um, is what gave me hope that it could be possible for me, and what also made it clear that I couldn't do it by myself. Um, and when it talks about um, towards the bottom of 42, the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window, and that was not easy. And so um, I relate to that a lot because it was pretty overwhelming in the beginning to hear like I would have to identify what my alcoholic foods or behaviors were, and then I would have to just stop eating those and engaging in those behaviors that felt impossible. Um and it is impossible if i was doing it by myself. Um and i also had several lifelong conceptions about even what it meant to be like healthy or unhealthy and what healthy foods were or unhealthy foods like i had um i had a lot of misconceptions even when it came to diet and so it was very confusing in the beginning for me to parse out like um, what is an alcoholic food and behavior for me? Like, what is it that sets off that physical allergy and makes me never want to stop eating that those it could be a low calorie food that does that for me, it could be something that's fat free or sugar free that does that for me. And so that was um, a lifelong conception that that was very confusing for me in the beginning. Um, And I also had a lot of conceptions about God and about people and about myself that, um, that started to shift just from hearing others recovery and working through the steps and that it continues to shift. Um, and when it talks about on page 43 being brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than a life I lived before. Um, yeah, I really did come in just because I, I was so blind to how sick I was. Um, and I really just wanted to like fix my food and weight problem. And, um, what I've been given is so much greater than that. I mean, even I have a two and a half year old daughter and I'm having another baby in January. Um, and yeah, I see Kim. <laughs> yes, I am. If you if we were in person, you would see that I am very pregnant. Um, <laughs> but um, that wouldn't be possible because I had lost my period even for um, for years after working in recovery. I had really done a number on my body and needed um, medical intervention to get pregnant with my daughter. And so, yeah, like when it talks about that, that old way of life, like I wouldn't have a family. Um, And um, I think my marriage, if it wasn't over, it wouldn't be a very pleasant (laughs) relationship to be involved in because I wanted um, him to fix me a lot. I put a lot of pressure on him. um, And I saw all my validation needed to come, you know, and it was something like there was no amount of words or actions that anyone could do to make me feel okay. and so um yeah it's it's given me a very different and a much richer life i'm not always just thinking about myself i was <laughs> i was obsessed with myself and um what i could get out of life and what i deserved and how people screwed me over and uh yeah i don't um for the most part i don't feel that like i've actually had some rage <laughs> during this pregnancy i think it's like hormonal but um <laughs> but you know i have I think the difference is, um, so, so I will say part of the reason that it was good for me to read this story about Fred now in my life is because I still have those mental blank spots and I still have those certain times where, um, I have, I, they, they come to mind. And so, um, in being pregnant, I'm just looking at my notes, um, Even after being in recovery for almost eight years, I still have those suddenly moments where I will have an idea like you need extra calories or like an extra whatever will help you because you feel nauseous or you're super tired today, like you were up so much in the night or you're gaining weight. So what does it matter? Um, And even at one of my OB checkups like a week or two ago and they weigh you and I shouldn't have looked and I did. And I was like, oh my God. Um. And it's like, there's no, there's no number on a scale that's ever going to be okay for me. So if it would have been lower than I expected, I would have been like, "Ooh, so maybe I can like (laughs) add some whatever. Or, and if it's high, then, oh, how can I control it? That's still like a lot of times, um, I'm just going to be honest because I'm recovered, but I, I still, okay. Yeah. Um, so I, Sometimes I feel I should be more involved than to have a thought like that. But those thoughts come. And I think the difference now is that before, if a thought like that would come or a food thought would come, it wasn't a matter of, um, if I was going to do something, it was like, how long can I hold out bef- before the, when, cause it's going to happen. And now when those thoughts come, um, I have a way of life to work through it. And I know that I need to connect to God. Um, which it's okay if you don't believe in God. (laughs) We agnostics is coming next. And um, yeah, no expectations, no pressure. Um, But yeah, and I have a network of support of people in recovery in my life who can help me navigate those truths um, when I can't see them for myself. Um, And I have the steps that I can use to like process through difficult situations or thoughts or feelings. So um, I think... I think I'm good. And it's a miracle that I didn't have to pee this whole time. <laughs> I was afraid I was gonna have to pee, but I'm okay so far. So um, I think that's all I had. And I appreciate you all being here and listening.
0: And I pass. Thank you so much, Toba. And if we can stop the recording.